and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Michelle Byrne and I'm here with my co-host Connor McCabe and a big welcome back to our other co-host Claire O'Connor. We're delighted to have her join us again on the show um, and as always we'll be having a look at the weekend papers and stories from the week from a left perspective and The Week at Work is part of Left Block, a political education media project and you can find more information about us or support us on patreon.com slash leftblock. Um, so Claire, um, given that it's here, we're, we have you back on, I'm going to hand it over to you for to tell us what you're reading this week. Thanks very much. It's great to be back. Um, so I've had, you know, had a, a kind of look across all the papers, but I'm going to have a quick look at the examiner's front page. Biggest story on the front there is, is Ukraine and Russia. And to be honest, what jumps out most to me reading it is that I just don't trust, you know, I don't, and I don't really trust what's been reported. Um, it's very much from a kind of Western perspective. It's, it's Joe Biden, it's the British ambassador. And I just, the biggest feeling I get when I started to read it was like they're talking about shelling and they're talking about you know Russia did this and the and NATO forces did this and and I just feel like I don't trust anything anymore we know so much about how these things evolve and how they're reported that you just can't trust who's behind any of these actions so yeah I'll be honest that's the biggest that's the biggest takeaway I took from that article there's a story there, a really sad story as well about um the the council worker um Billy Kinsley who died in the storm down in Wexford just just found that you know very sad that he actually fell for a fallen tree considering you know the work he did big story there about crypto warren as man loses one million euro in crypto fraud and for anybody that's really interested in that trademark belfast actually have a series on at the minute and one of their most recent episodes is on crypto and it's brilliant and rather than me talk about it here i think if you have any questions about it definitely head over and listen to to that po podcast it's brilliant um i'll be honest the story tiny little story in the bottom left hand corner is the story that you know kind of pulled my eye most and it's basically the headline is why is it easier to buy viagra and it's about uh caravan medication there's been huge talk about it recently it's for hyperemesis uh i had hyperemesis in both my pregnancies and it's basically when the nausea and vomiting is so extreme that it just completely disrupts your whole life i was in an hour hospital i couldn't eat or i was you know sorry for being so graphic on a sunday morning but vomiting just constantly like i about about seven stone after I had I was I, I weighed less at nine months pregnant than I did before I got pregnant because I just couldn't eat and I, I was diabetic as well so it was just an absolute nightmare I didn't have caravan in my fourth pregnancy and about 12 I think yeah I think it was about 12 15 weeks into my second pregnancy I got it and I'm not joking I mean mentally I remember when I felt pregnant the second time the thoughts of doing 10 more months of that day in day out almost sometimes minute to minute just absolutely it's it is soul destroying. It's absolutely, and it's dangerous. Like it's really dangerous to women as well. Like a lot of women end up in hospital for days on drips because they literally can't keep water down. And the story mm -hmm. is about the fact that still, I mean, there is a campaign ongoing at the minute, but it's it's really expensive medication. It doesn't fall in under the drug payment scheme. It doesn't fall in under, you know, like medical cards. Like it's basically an off-brand piece of medication that women have to fork out hundreds a month for. There's women who. I know somebody who was in hospital in a bed next to somebody who was just there because she couldn't afford the medication. Like if she hadn't had access to that medication, it would have kept her out of hospital. So it's, it's just a really cruel kind of um, approach to it. And the argument in this is you can get, you know, why is Viagra included and this essential medication mm -hmm. for women isn't. And on the back of that as well, now, there is a big campaign going on at the minute. I know Gary Gannon raised it in the doll the other day and Hyperemesis Ireland have been really beating that drum. But um, there was a 
one of the committees convened the conversation about it the other day, but it was a real letdown and they really didn't commit to anything. I mean, it's a no brainer. This is something that is making pregnant women really ill and it should be included. Again, mm. it's just the misogyny within medicine though, shown its head. Yeah, it, it kind of shows that, you know, that, that the fight for uh, reproductive health care is, is far from over. And like, there's a comment made, I'm, I'm wearing my repeal jumper today. Um, it's, it's mostly because I'm freezing, but like, you know, the fight for reproductive health care and health care for women, pregnant people, are just it's just not over like I know we have the repeal review going on at the moment but like as you say like when you can make that very stark uh, contrast of like very basic medication that you need uh, for pre pregnant people need um, not being available on like drug schemes like that is like institutionalized misogyny against yeah. you know a women like and it's healthcare is horrendous it's a feminist issue and as well not so I read that and then I talked to a friend of mine I saw post on Instagram and I've seen it everywhere over the past month HRT is our stock in chemists and a friend of mine a friend of mine hasn't been able to get her HRT for a month a month without her hormonal treatment for menopause like it's it's off the wall that this would be a situation that would be allowed to continue so the day she posted about it, I had been in the the chemist the day before and there was this again this massive new um display right in the front of the chemist of of viagra like it took up about a third of the shelf space and don't get me wrong absolutely no issue with viagra being available to people but it's like the disconnect between the amount of money and priority and space given to a man's product compared to there's two women's products that are essential like they're just absolutely essential and i just find it you know again like you said sometimes we see reproductive rights through this very narrow lens and it's so much bigger and like period poverty like we could go on all day like there's all of these issues that actually come from that misogyny within healthcare mm. it's it's so top down like who makes the decisions to put research into pro those products who makes the decisions to uh, you know you, you know we think about it you know when you talk yeah. think about like the campaigns for like women in stem and you know all of that like there's probably a lot of men making decisions around this at the yeah. top um and then you see it filter down in so many levels um for for in the go into the pharmacy and that half of the place is taken up with viagra products and very little for for women's health care yeah it's it's shocking like endometrio endometriosis as well i'm not pronouncing that right but that's another one where there's been so many women leaving live in excruciating pain and there's been barely any research on it it's really only becoming a conversation now uh i mean the research is there in regards to the amount of funding given to issues that are typically considered you know men's health issues compared to women's health issues we find that when women go into gps as well though that they don't feel like and this is born out in the research they don't feel listened to they don't feel like they're they feel like their pain is dismissed a lot quicker than men's is men are you know listen to when they say they have pain women and it has very serious consequences there's a podcast um that linea, linea dunn does and it's specifically on women's health and every week it's just story after story of women who have been negatively impacted because of this misogyny because of not being believed when they go in or because of not having access to treatment and it's just it's yeah it's a serious issue it's an ordered issue and it needs to be addressed so that's the front page yeah I know I know I know in my friend circles anyway it's it's all of my friends will go to the doctors and it's just like oh they didn't believe me this time I'm like just keep going like like you know encouraging your friends to keep like getting to get the answer because it's constant like not being believed or misdiagnosed or just fobbed off um it's it's just the the, the extent of it is is fairly deep but sounds like there was a lot there on the front page of the examiner uh, thanks for that Claire I know Connor you were reading um a good few things this week on lots of different uh, pieces of research that you were working on um would you like to talk about some of them as well yeah um I've 
it's a bit weird just being on a show that's about kind of newspapers where I've kind of given up on reading kind of newspapers just for my own kind of sanity. Um, so um, maybe I should just stop coming on. But I have been reading, I have been doing stuff and, 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 and I have been kind of researching. And and there's a couple of things that came out kind of during the week. Um, like the main reason why I try to avoid the newspapers is that it's, there's a lot of noise, you know, as as Claire was, you know, yeah, like was saying there, it, that story, like that was buried on the front page. Claire, was it that story about the... Oh, sorry. It was just a tiny little story on the bottom left-hand corner. A tiny I mean, little story. On the front page is one thing, but yeah. A tiny yeah, little was, story. Was... So this this huge story, and it's a tiny little kind of uh, no, a tiny little a tiny little uh, like paragraph uh, with the main story, which should have been uh, the main story, and the main story being this kind of phony war for clicks that's happening in terms of Russia and the Ukraine. There's been shelling going on for ever close on five, six, ten years now. Only, only this week they did they say as if the shelling was new and they have kind of shelling. Oh, there's been shelling, you know. Um, but the main story about you know their like around kind of women's health. Tiny little story. This is not a tiny little story. This is a huge story, you know. So um, that's my excuse for not doing my my homework. Uh, my uh, my dog didn't need it or my cat didn't need it. Uh, but I haven't tried. To you know, to avoid it. But what has come out was that uh, during the week, the CSO published the survey of income and living kind of conditions, and it does this kind of yearly. So it's it's a it's a once yearly kind of report, and uh, it's changed its kind of methodology. So it's not it's not directly comparable uh, with kind of last year. Now there are issues with the way that they measure kind of poverty, which, and um, I, one of the things that I find kind of frustrating is that all the organizations, um, they take these, these surveys as, as gospel. So the definition of like poverty is, is um, if your income is, is, is less than like 60% of the median kind of income, household income, but why? Why is it sixty percent? Why not fifty nine percent or kind of fifty five percent? Why is it sixty? Have you done kind of maths on this? You know, like how it works out is that 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 works out as two hundred and seventy three euros a week. So they're basically saying that as far as the numbers go, if you have two hundred and seventy four euros a week, you are not going to be counted in the survey as being. Um, uh, in in danger of like of of like poverty. Um, it's not that's based. Iconic. Yeah, that's only at, that's only at risk of poverty. It's only two hundred and seventy three euro seventeen cent. So if you get an eighteen cent, two hundred and seventy three point eighteen. Now I don't want to get all like this is something that who's that asshole the the Canadian guy uh, is it Patterson? Who's the guy who's he talks like Kermit the Frog. Um, he's the bloke, you know. He's the he's the like Jordan Peterson. Uh, that's it, Jordan. Uh, John kind of uh, Jordan. Uh, uh, Jordan kind of Peterson. Kermit the fucking frog. But like he does this kind of all the time. He he looks so like I'm. 
and where you're like, getting into kind of definitions because I mean, that's what he does. He plays around with kind of definitions as if it's a form of intelligence. But there are issues here. These figures are are important. They, they do serve a like purpose. But I think that we should maybe start kind of um, updating these things. Like from from those figures, they're saying that um, that you know there's an a, a risk kind of uh, there's around. 13.2 percent of the um, of the population are are living below the kind of poverty line, which is 272 euros 23 cent. I said 17 cent. Sorry, it's it's 272 and 23 cent. There's an extra kind of six cent there. So, um, but the problem here though is that it's not based on what your outcome is. So, like it says, kind of that's your me a median kind of disposable income, but, but disposable income it's measured by um, what you have after you've paid tax. It's not what's left after you've paid rent or paid kind of ESB or paid kind of you know kind of bills. It's it's disposable if you don't have any bills. So what they're saying is that if you're on two hundred, if, if you're on two hundred and eighty euros a week, and that's your income. And out of that, you pay rent when you pay kind of ESB and all that, you're grand. You're not suffering from, uh, from poverty. And we know that that's simply not the case. So, so what we can say is that at a baseline, the absolute minimum is around 13%. What they did do new, and this is good, because like um, I don't want to get all kind of karma the frog here, but like what is good is that they they talked about they they've done a survey for the first time of what's your income after you've paid rent. So it's the first it's 2022. It's the very first time that the CSO has scratched his head and said, well, you know, how much how many people are in poverty after they have paid rent? You know? Decade and into a housing crisis. Decade into into a kind of housing crisis. And what they find is that um of those who are renting and not getting any social kind of support. So those who are who are not on HAP, who are not on any kind of payments, who are not in, who are not getting kind of social kind of housing. Um, well, first of all, those who are in kind of social housing, um, 49.8% of them are at risk of, of poverty after they've paid their, their portion of the rent. Um, for those who are on HAP, it's 55.9% of those on HAP payments and those, and I say HAP, but it's all those kind of payments are, are on that. But if you're not getting any kind of payments, around 31% of all renters in the fully kind of private sector without any kind of supports are at risk of poverty. It's 18% before they, they pay rent and it jumps up to 21% after they have paid rent, simply rent alone. So that's so. These are people who are working, um, who are working and who, who are working enough not to qualify for for those arbitrary kind of means tests, which are out there. Um, they probably don't even even qualify for a medical card, which, which gets into, you know, women aren't believed when they first go to the doctor and they're charged kind of fifty five euros for not being believed. Then they've got to go back again and again and again until they are kind of believed. Um, that's not factored in here as well. So it's a it's a bit of a kind of a, it's a long round, no way of saying that 
these figures are interesting, but what is shocking is just how conservative and how how lacking um, ambition these like figures are in terms of understanding kind of what things are. Uh, sorry, Claire, did you want to jump no, in? No, I remember we did a we did a podcast me you and Dave last year on the probably these exact figures, and you did it. I think it was a special, and you really explained like you know why they matter, why there's problems with it, and. It brings me back to on Tuesday, was it Monday or Tuesday night when uh, Claire Bourne, I don't know if anybody saw the Claire Bourne show during the week, but Tony Groves inserted himself into the conversation brilliantly and it kind of went viral. But one of the things he talked about was, I know I think it might, he said it might have been 2019 figures. It wasn't maybe the most up-to-date ones and they might actually be higher now. But it, he said- But this only came out, yeah, I mean, these only came out on on, yeah. on Thursday. So they wouldn't have even been out yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, what he was saying was was that forty one percent of households rely on some kind of social transfer to pull them out of that at risk of poverty. You know, so like a uh, 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 section, and it's just it's another thing he said that I think comes back to this again was that there's an inherent dishonesty at the root of so many of these conversations, and it's like if we're measuring something, we need to make sure we're measuring the right thing. And yeah, it, I learned so much from that from you on that podcast last year, and it's to see them doing some of the same stuff again and changing some of it it's like are they uh, you know it's quite frustrating it's quite frustrating to see not enough change in this because i think we we can't change what we, we're not measuring and to think yeah. a decade into the housing crisis we see so many conversations about if the certain percentage of people's income is going on rent or is going on housing but if we're not actually recording it accurately through the cso how can we be sure about you know when we're having those conversations it's it's really frustrating yeah and they can you know, talk about poverty in this country God no, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, like absolutely, and like you know, even down to the fact that, like, instead of saying like that's um, uh, Saint Vincent and the Paul have, have have started kind of doing this in their kind of research, but they've looked at what are people actually spending money on, what do they need to get through the day, and not even the week, but uh, just through the day, and, and then they use that as their basis for looking at kind of, you know, kind of poverty kind of income. But there are issues even with that kind of, uh, you know, kind of approach, but nevertheless, they are trying something different. We have official policy being based on an arbitrary figure of 60% of the median income, as if the median income itself is enough to get you through the day, like on the week, like on the month. It's not, you know? Like, like when they get into kind of deprivation, they have this kind of list of kind of 11 things that if you miss, you may have, you know, and like, it's as if it was done up by the nuns. Like, like it says here that, you know, if you can't afford a roast once a week, do, do, do people still have roast dinners? Is that still a, is, is, is that still a thing? Um, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, like, like this is so old, it's an analog. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's yeah. how old mm. this is. This is an analog survey for a for a digital world. Um, I'm a, yeah, sorry, Claire. Sorry, I, I'm doing a piece of work at the minute, so I've been talking to people in communities, and one thing that's coming up, just like I knew it was an issue, but access to counselling, access to therapeutic services is really just, okay. Just it, it's just not there. People are going on waiting lists mm. for a year, you know, and then and then when you look at the low cost services that are stretched to the max and it's like you might have people living in extreme poverty and if they can't access a free service, they have to access a low, a low cost service that might cost 30 euro, 20 euro. Now, a lot mm. of the local services will say, give us what you can and they'll make it happen because they're just these brilliant community organizations and community workers who will try to help people 
no matter you know however they can but it's I knew it was an issue but it's it's been so frustrating to see what should be a state service and it's a it's an example again of when state services fail they just turn the other way community organizations step in to try and meet a need because they're meeting that need in some way the state you know the how how big a need is there kind of is diminished because in the state can act like something has been done about it and they'll probably throw mm. a few crumbs at those community organizations to be able to provide services but it's I, I just think when you're talking about what people have to pay out sometimes they're having to pay out for things that the state should be providing as well because of waiting lists because they've been you know people with mental health like serious mental health crisis going to hospitals and being turned away and then being put on a waiting list for services if if you're living in poverty and you have any extra money every week and you have somebody in your family who's in crisis you're going to spend that to pay for a private counselor if you can and mm-hmm. it's, it's again it's a lack of state service that are forcing people to to spend what little they have so th- again those figures just don't mean anything because actually it's not accurately reflecting what it costs to live in such a violent world what it costs mm. to survive in a world as violent as our world has become and just on that counseling thing as well Claire it's interesting the, the state have been given funding to uh, some online services as well like my mind they do free counseling services online but like there's so many people who don't have access to the internet, access to a private space to even have that conversation in overcrowded housing. You know, there's just so many layers of like blockages that even that level of access um, has behind it. And interesting, just in the wider conversation as well around um, poverty, there is a piece in the Sunday Business Post I was reading this morning um, around, you know, employment records reach levels of 2.5 million. It's the highest employment we've ever had in the Irish economy. That's what they're saying. Um yeah, so it's it's so essentially it's saying it's a ten percent, ten percent higher than twenty twenty. Um, but like this really short article in the Sunday Business Post doesn't talk anything about the fact that that's lo- there's so much low paid precarious work. A lot of these are working poor. Um, you know, like th- th- there's probably some people in these figures that are in those po- poverty definitions. But yes, we're celebrating you know, the amount of people in employment, not the type of employment and the type of lives that people can live off the wages off the back of that employment. I think there's a big gap in the conversation around that too. And is that employment costing more money in social transfers then as well? Like if somebody is being, you know, is going to work, mm-hmm. they're earning below that threshold, that means that they, they now need housing support. They now need, um, you know, an additional payment, like the, the work and family payment. I mean, it's mm. a lot of these figures, but then we'll complain about or brag about the amount of social transfers that they're actually giving to people. And it's just this, such a dysfunctional. It's just. Yeah. Or are they, are they in those, that scheme, what's the job, jobs bridge 2.0, where are they, are they counting those jobs as well, where people are getting paid for, for, for doing work that should be real jobs as well, you know, um, yeah. not, not this kind of, you know, calling it a, an internship, not an internship kind of thing. Um, that's still going on and like you know when they're saying there's so many jobs and the government are still back in failed schemes like that um it just doesn't make sense to me yeah i mean well you know like they're going those kind of points and they're going back there to claire's kind of point around kind of counseling like in that list of what what constitutes being poor or being kind of in like income deprivation they don't have a question on can you afford to go to the doctor when you are ill Right. They don't have that. That question is not even asked. Right. So going back to your point there, Claire, around, like, you know, can you afford counselling when you need it? You know, and um, and it's and it's just not going to pass. And also, like, to, to, to tie in kind of earlier on, 
Thank you. When a household needs to pay for these things, there's a gendered aspect even there, you know? So it's the, it's the you know, it's the, it's the mother in the house who, who's going to do her out. Like, it, it, like in order to pay for these things, you know, like, you know, like, like, like this is, this is a highly gendered kind of system, highly gendered, you know, in its, uh, in its expectation, the state knows, and is that cynical? I firmly believe it. Mm. It knows that if you cut social yeah. services, that work, the, the workload doesn't cut. Uh, the, mm. the workload like isn't cut it's transferred and it's transferred onto the shoulders of mainly women because that work is is gendered in our kind of society yeah, and, you know and there's worries about um as well the the working from home uh, legislation bill that's coming up but that will also kind of push more feminized uh kind of gendered issues in the workplace from home because you'll end up like doing care and working from home at the same time and all of that kind of like unpaid right. labor um in the home um and there is a piece actually in the sunday business post as well kind of like talking about this new bill um on the remote remote working and essentially uh the unions have come out and criticized it and said <laughs> like essentially what this bill is give, is doing is like just allowing uh it's giving no kind of uh allowances for the worker so one of the things is the, the, the bill bans workers from going to the Workplace Relations Commission if they have any issues with the um, working from home um, requests. And the only reason you would be able to complain about the decision of um, requesting to work from home is actually not in the decision itself, only if they pass the 12-week uh, requirement that they have the employer have to respond by. So, like, you can't respond on the reason why you are not going to get a working from home um, allowed, but you can only um, appeal if they haven't responded to you in 12 weeks. So here we go again. It's another law for the employers um, uh, just to, to essentially, to, you have the right to ask, you know, that kind of thing, but actually it's not giving us as uh, workers any uh, protections, no kind of, they're not under any legal, employers aren't under any legal uh, obligation to actually allow this. Um, that, that you know, that in certain cases you would yeah. be allowed to work from home. And I know in certain cases it really does help people to work from home. And then obviously we we're just talking there about the issues of like, you know, this could fall into more feminized, you know, gendered uh, element here where women are working from home. You know, there is issues with it, but there's a lot of pros, like for accessibility reasons, a lot of people have been able to to work from home um, for environmental reasons, not traveling in and out, commuting loads. And um, if you have the space in your your home to be able to work from home, that's great. And obviously there is some professions that you won't be able to do that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it seems like another law again, set up for employers. But at the same time, there is obviously that gendered uh, element to it as well. That is, can be a concern how, you know, women are back in the home working um, and probably caring and doing everything on top of it as well. So it, it is a concern. It, it actually, the bill increases the number of reasons that employers can refuse on it benefits them in so many ways and um, just on what you're talking about there and particularly connor what you were talking about i was going to go to one story but the two of them are kind of linked and i'll go to this one instead there was three articles i read today <laughs> justine mccarty on o'malley for me sins and um oh god who else was it, it was justin o'malley or justin mccarty on o'malley and jennifer bray had an article yesterday which kind of kicked a lot of this off so there's been a fewer over the last uh, week or so over this end, uh, the National Women's Council rally protest. 
I think we should make it clear here a rally is a protest for anybody that's in it, any doubt I don't think anybody listening to this podcast would be under any doubt about that but so there's been you know the government TDs came out they were angry that they weren't given a platform on a protest against government decisions um, we all know that's absurd we don't need to get into that conversation but what I think has t- taken a really sinister sinister turn was Regina Doherty went on the radio the other day and kind of suggested that funding would be threatened because of a, because of a decision like this now, this is something that has been happening in the sector, the, the community and voluntary sector, the NGO sector, charities for decades. You see it in housing. You see it when there's a really, really particularly bad story on housing or a failure by the state. And the next day you have the head of one of the biggest homeless charities, you know, out with a, out with a shovel with one of the housing ministers. They are huge pressures put on them not to criticise government or their funding might be at risk. And it's this is how this has played out for decades. People in the sector know it. But they're saying it out loud now. They're saying it out loud. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a lot of frustration. I know people, there's a lot of people, and I understand, are getting frustrated about the conversation as a whole because they're saying this is just a load of middle class women um, talking about, you know, platforming and space when actually there's a, a huge amount of marginalized women who feel left out by the Women's Council by this particular rally. And they're just being forgotten as always. And I think that's a really valid conversation as well. But why I do think this is important is because then yesterday what happened was there was an article by Jennifer Gray saying the government are now saying that there's like some kind of sinister link to Sinn Féin in the Women's Council because one of their staff members is a member of Sinn Féin. And they singled out two staff members, one from Sinn Féin and one from the Social Democrats and their personal tweets and had this massive spread in the paper over it. And it was this, it was like, for me, I think we need more politicised women. You know, we need more and more radically left women. But like the idea that if you get into this kind of work in an NGO, that is a lobbying organization it's a political organization these issues are political that you know it's some it's dangerous if people in there have political affiliations it's dangerous because they're not government affiliations government are using their platforms and their positions of power to attack these people and politicized women and it's a warning it's a warning to all the like for me that's the biggest thing here this isn't just about the women's council because there's people who have replied on social media and said but the women's council have been really bad on this or on this and it's like yeah, but this isn't just about the Women's Council. This is a warning to everybody that receives government funding. Mm. I mean, the idea that, that they're saying that if you don't platform us, you shouldn't be funded. Like, it's the whole point of funding these organisations is so that there is a space for them to then lobby government or criticise government or actually, you know, raise the issues that are important. And yeah, there can be conversations about how well some organisations are doing that. But I think it's it's really like Justin McCarthy just had an excellent piece on it about, again, that kind of structural issue about the fe- feminist issues and how government parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, have dragged their feet on, fe- feet on feminist issues for decades. They had to be dragged, mm-hmm. kicking and screaming into. And yeah, there might be some women in there who are good on. And again, it comes back to this really white middle-class feminism. These women have been posting on social media, like the sense of entitlement all week about how they're doing this and they're doing that on feminist cause. And, and it's like, you're pushing working class and marginalised mm-hmm. women deep into poverty by the day. So that, you know, th- that's not feminist work. Like you're not an actual feminist unless you're, you're working to help, working towards helping the most marginalized women and they just don't they don't understand that they don't understand that intersectional piece but i just think that was a really there's a really sinister tone to that and just i, I pass back over the two years now but there was another story about the um the press ombudsman peter feeney i'll just say to anybody go have a look at that twitter account it's the funniest thing you, you'll ever see like some of the tweets they put up are just absolutely it, it looks like a parody sometimes it's so pro-government but so the the press ombudsman 
uh, was at a, the Joint Directors Committee on Public Petitions on Thursday, and they're talking about the social media legislation. And he basically said, and listen, there is cyberbullying and the abuse that politicians get can be very extreme online. And I know that particularly women, women can get it absolutely horrifically. You just have to look at Eve Grace Moore's timeline sometimes um, as, a, as a journalist, and it's like absolutely horrific. But the headline of this article is anti-establishment tone on social media is influence and attitudes to politicians ombudsman says this guy is pretty pro you know pro-establishment but in it he talks about how politicians will say that 20 years ago when they'd go knocking on people's door they get a very it'd be a very positive experience and now it's not as positive and people will you know they can get into it and it's like the idea that that's because of social media and not because of decades of cuts and austerity and them absolutely abusing their power just blows my mind and it's again back to what we talked about earlier who makes the decisions who are in the positions of power and it's these echo chambers that they're mm. so disconnected from reality and people's lived experience that if but also people, trying to yeah. use that discussion around social media to like weaponize it to be like oh well we we need to be included in in like to weaponize it to to push back against dissent yeah. You know, so like I do not in any way condone uh, the abuse that some people are getting online. That's absolutely not not what I'm saying here. But the fact that they're saying any anti-establishment view or any anti-government view is abuse is not correct either. And um, we have to be able to voice our dissent, um, not targeted at individuals or anything like that. But, the, you know, that that is something. And, you know, trying to govern that is it kind of reminds me of that, like, you know, trying to govern protest. What are you allowed to protest on? And what are you not allowed to protest on? Um, and who makes those decisions? Only the very people who are protesting against, you know? So that, that that's really worrying around, like, you know, what where that could go down the line. Um, and, and just to circle back on what the other, the piece that you were talking about around uh, the Women's Council as well, like a lot of those women who are up talking about how, you know, that they, they should speak on behalf of women, why aren't they speaking out um, on like the publicly funded maternity hospital if they care so much about uh women's issues like do they not care about reproductive health care being accessible for women um in in like our maternity hospitals like that that's a decision they can make they're in government so if they really want to be involved in those like uh women's issues discussions like bring them to the forefront in the power that they have like ngos non-government organizations are protesting against the government they're not gonna have government tds talking to the government at a, like a, a protest is organized against the government like it's just bizarre the whole thing but anyway sorry to circle back on that again but um speaking of like health care uh because there seems to be a, bit of a trend a trend uh today's pod um the front page of the sunday business post um is talk is kind of a continuation of the story last week where there was leaked audio recordings um of like some of the inside conversations of the top level uh, officials in the Department of Health. Um, so there's more tapes out, uh, new health tapes, claims of batshit targets, horror of waste and no fear or respect is the, the title. Um, so yeah, more recordings have been released. And uh, I do I do wonder about like what way these whistleblowers um, are going to end up from the end of this because we know that uh, whistleblowers in Ireland aren't, aren't exactly treated the best and that's a whole other conversation for another pod probably but some of the uh, revelations that have come out this weekend is that the HSE are in fact uh, considering an 80 million correction to its 2020 accounts um, so that, that that's kind of um, and they, they called it uh, due to technical adjustments technical adjustments of 80 million um, now do you know any other uh, 
But do you think revenue would allow anyone, uh, any of the ordinary working class away with an 80 million adjustment for technical adjustments like uh, on accounts? Like that's outrageous. Um, but yeah, it just kind of shows that like this is the level of like Asher 80 million here. Do what, what does that matter? We'll just twist the accounts. It's just so mad to think about like the chronic underfunding in the HSE and the lack of services in some place, like, for example, like, you know, eating disorders. Like, we've been talking about that in the kind of wider conversation around, like, the, H- the HSE funding, like, operation transformation, but not funding uh, beds in, uh, for people who have uh, eating disorders. Um, like, it, and also then it's talking about um, the fact that the last year they had to return $267 million to the exchequer last year. Um, because they didn't spend it. 267 million. That is... Like, like that, like, and we're talking about here, you know, uh, waiting lists are through the roof. We were in a pandemic. Uh, we weren't paying the nurses enough. We weren't paying the student nurses the money that we promised them. And they were handing back 267 million euro uh, in a health crisis. That's, that's, I, I know people, I have friends who have paid privately for um, treatment for eating disorders and have been you know, in really, really precarious health-wise um, situations mm. where they've had to spend time in hospital because of the physical toll. To know that no money has been spent on that plan and we're sending hundreds of millions back, that is such a mm. slap in the face. And oh, absolutely. But most about that story, I don't know if anybody saw the health committee with Robert Watt and Stephen um, Reid. I swear to, like, if ever you wanted to try your telly out the window, like, the, the smugness of them, I mean, they came in, Slantia Care is a pipe dream at this stage. What was once lauded as the the most democratic and kind of you know cross-party there was such cross-party participation it was seen as this real way of doing politics into the future long-term plan not government to government and they've just absolutely undermined and destroyed it half the committee mm. walked away and, and basically said that it, you know it's not happening but what really jumps out to me is we're always hearing about how much money has gone into health they can't do more there's some 55 billion you know like there's so much money being pumped into health um that's not the problem like clearly there's a mismanagement there's a complete lack of direction there's how they approach the health service like we know that there's so many more consultants than there is or um, kind of admin staff and managerial staff than there is actual health staff and like my mom was in hospital there a couple of weeks ago and obviously they're so under-resourced at the minute because so many people are out with covid and like care staff are having to take on so many more responsibilities nursing staff are having to take on so many more responsibilities doctors are literally going doing way over what they're even legally allowed mm. to be working now you know she said her doctor was on his knees like he literally had to kneel down to talk to her she said the exhaustion on his face was just palpable you know and it's like when you see this money gone unspent like it's it's so infuriating and again back to the the counseling like that is mental health is health that like mm. they are services that should be provided by the health service back to slantia care and the primary care centers it's this is the kind of thing i've been feeling now listen i've been feeling it for a while but I'm really feeling more and more that there's just no hope. And I know that's not a good way to be. And I know I'll get over that. But it, feel, these, it feels unsurmountable that they've let it get to such a stage that it's so broken and so dysfunctional. And you have a situation like that where literal tapes are being leaked. And Daniel McConnell had an article as well in The Examiner. And he talks about whistleblowers in it and how badly we treat whistleblowers in this country. Um, so the hell HSE went on the radio and denied all of this at the start of the week. And mm. in that same conversation, basically confirmed, you know, confirmed the 80 to 90 million shortfall, confirmed that it won't be 10,000 extra staff hired, it'll be 5,000. 
but the, in what like you know in one breath they're denying something and confirming it in the other like they're so well trained on the media side of things that you just can't believe a word out of their mouth and this yeah. is the healthcare. this is the you know one of the healthcare housing like what is going right in the country like what is actually going right and <laughs> I, can i just go back as well that that claire Bourne show at the start of the week which was again it was basically like an anti-shin fan a whole show dedicated to that I went, I was a panelist on basically the exact same show two years ago after the general election. I was asked to go on as kind of post-election coverage. That's what I thought it was going on. And it turned into this. I don't think any of us knew, none of the panelists knew that it was specifically about Sinn Féin. First question that I was asked was, why don't young people, young voters care about victims of IRA violence? Like that, that was the first question put to me. I obviously tried not to fit into it. And then a victim of IRA violence, Claire went straight to a victim of IRA violence in the audience to put a question to me like it was I think what happened this week was much more subtle but when I was watching it and again Tony jumped in and just did fact checking the whole time and it was brilliant but one thing I don't think we talk about enough because listen the whole conversation was the kind of acceptance that Sinn Féin might be in the next government and I think we're we're starting to even the left is starting to be much more critical of Sinn Féin you know from a policy perspective because that it, that is looking very likely now at this stage. One thing I don't hear anybody talking about though, and it certainly wasn't raised on Claire Bourne during the week, was they were talking about the barriers to Sinn Féin. They kept going back to the troubles and they kept going back to, you know, history. And for me, nobody ever talks about the permanent government. Nobody ever talks about the unelected permanent government of senior civil servants who run these departments, the Robert Watts, you know, mm. the people who are very clearly tied to ideology um and i i know from speaking to previous ministers that if if your department head does not agree or does not want to go in the direction you want them to go in they can make it very difficult for you they arrange the meetings they organize the department the work like i know one minister particularly told me before that meetings that he needed to have to make a particular policy happen that he was a hundred percent behind you know, kept getting cancelled or the wrong person, the right person. And he knew... Or, or sometimes the, the meetings don't even have the politicians in the room. It's just the officials. You're like, you're there trying to convince the, the officials what the, yeah. what needs to go into a specific bill, um, not the politicians, because it's very clear uh, who is actually making the decisions in the background. And yeah. like, as the analysis that Connor gave last week as well, um, you know, around our discussions last week too, like, it is, it is worrying to see, like, you know, like the political will might be there, like when we're talking about the mental health last uh, last week, um, the funding that they got, but then the staff were just the officials were kind of saying, well, we, we don't have the we don't have the will to meet that political yeah. will and um, to make that work. Um, and and I think power. you can probably see it across like a lot of things here. So we we're talking about the recruitment issues in the HSE, and um, that comes up again. But like some of the things that are coming out of this leak this time is that uh, one. Michael McGrath had said he didn't think we needed the um, 514 million supplementary budget um, and that it wasn't utilised as attended. Uh, two, there's oversight in the department's finances were told to look the other way as budget rules weren't followed. Um, political pressure led to money being spent without proper assessments. So this is this narrative again. It's like, oh, you, it, this is the politician's fault for telling us to do these things. Um, but... We're, we're, we're saying that the assessments aren't done and that, you know, things aren't going to happen. And then the other piece as well was like this comment of like, oh, we can't officially put that in writing. This like, you know, so the things can't be FOIable, can't, you know, that they can't uh, be held account to those things. But one thing as well was the recruitment crisis now was said in one of the meetings in the, in the leaked audios was that the, host, the opening of new hospitals 
um, can be, is going to be affected. So are we going to pump billions of euro into a children's hospital that won't be able to open the doors to, because there is no political will to actually address, not political will even, probably like institutional will uh, for the recruitment problems to be addressed. And look, we had a discussion yeah. in more detail last week about the recruitment issue piece, but it's it's very concerning. And I am pleased to continue to see this conversation continue. And I know, Claire, you were saying like, you know, it's hard to know where the hope is, but like, hopefully these conversations will actually mean action and change yeah. in, in ways and obviously keep bringing it up and like encouraging whistleblowers to keep coming forward with information that will, that's sort of the public good. Yeah. Uh, I, again, though, even everything you're talking about there, it's... Uh, on a, it, it comes back to political education as well, though. I don't think enough people really understand that whole senior civil servant piece and that a lot of it, a lot of this doesn't matter what, what a minister stands up and says in the doll because he's not in those meetings. He's actually not making those decisions. And we have a real issue. A lot of the people running these departments or working in these departments were part of putting the eighth into the constitution. You know, like they're around so long and have been involved in this really conservative politics for so long. Let's say we get Sinn Fein or any centre-left government going in there. Either let's say Sinn Fein go aggressively if their departments are working against them. That will massively backfire and they'll be portrayed as this. That's exactly what a lot of people in the establishment would want. Or they soften even more and start to move towards the centre to and there's more and more compromise. And we all lose in both of those situations. So that's my biggest fear right now about the next government is actually that not enough people understand that it, it could massively undermine the next government. And then we could just go right back to the governments we always had. And people will think that it's a it's a left wing government or a centre left government that, that wasn't able to get things done when really it's this massive permanent civil service we have there that nobody really talks about that we're, we see the odd time trotted out in the health committees or, or these other committees that we're talking two of them at the health committee 700 grand salary between the two of them, and they can't manage this organization like it's just sickening like it's really outrageous and mm. i think that again it comes back to the political education piece that we're always talking about absolutely absolutely connor do you have anything to say on that or is there anything else you want to discuss that you are working on during the week yeah i mean and just on that point i mean you know it's something that, it, it, that we've talked about like on this podcast uh, uh, pretty much since it started uh, it was that um, there needs to be like given uh, given the fact that this isn't a case of like it was Claire and like um, like I said there um, we're not dealing just with kind of putting in kind of different ministers just the way that power works in the state it's a lot more kind of deep than that so there's a need for organization outside of a political parties um you know street organization you know it, you know but it goes back to how we how we can prepare for a Sinn Féin kind of government is by building up kind of groups outside of like parties um that can take to the streets because um because because that's that's where you see kind of things change uh, the reason why there was such a kickback against kind of uh, the water protests, it wasn't about water anymore. It, it was about if we give these people a win, they will like that and that will scare the shit out of us because the numbers aren't on their side. So like the real issue with the uh, water campaign was that it was it was outside of their control and actually showed up you know, at the limits of their power, you know? So 
like for me, like, you know, that's where kind of things could get kind of interesting. Um, so, you know, like my view is that uh, politicians will go, where, will go where the votes are. Um, so they can look after themselves. Any kind of organization has to be about, you know, how do we can prepare for a kind of a center-left kind of government for the first time ever, is to say, well, you know, is the way of, of making sure that when Owen O'Brien is trying to push through his, his housing kind of policy, that there's numbers on the streets to back up that, you know? And also, if he doesn't do it, if he does go, like, you know, if the, if, if, if the kind of developers do take him by the hand and, and start speaking into his ear, um, that, that there's numbers on the streets to say, no, Owen, fucking watch yourself here, you know? So, I mean, like, that's where, that's where I think kind of, you know, any kind of uh, hope lies. Um, on the hope thing, this is a bit corny, but um, I'm, I'm working on a, it's a research kind of thing now uh, on artist-led kind of studios in, in Ireland. And I found this kind of, this quote that I did for a walking tour of the IFSC. And it's from kind of Demita, uh, you know, Fraser, who was one of the, uh, who's, who's one of the authors of the uh, Comahy River kind of collective kind of statement that's seen as the first real articulation of a theory around kind of, of a theory around kind of, you know, around um, intersectionality. And she says that paralyzed with us to wrench the narrative of the future out of the hands of those who are dedicated to maintaining the present illusion, you know? And, you know, it's, a, it's just that great kind of quote that, you know, that's, that's where our kind of power lies. It's to take that narrative of there is a future and to take it out of the hands of these fuckers who are, who are dedicated to maintaining the present kind of illusion. And it is an illusion. It's backed up kind of coercively through the media, through the state, through the police, through the law courts, it is kind of backed up. That illusion has a, you know, has a coercive kind of element to it, but it is still an illusion. It can be changed. Um, yeah, but it means one having those ideas, taking that future and saying, this is our future. So just like, fuck you, lads. And also to maintain that it's not the illusion that has the power, it's the coercive element behind that illusion. And that gets into your heads of, of the departments, of the civil service, of the central bank, of the Department of Finance, and there are links with the, uh, you know, with the uh, housing industrial kind of, uh, but complex that is Ireland these days, you know. Uh, but yeah, um, march on the streets. That's the only way. <laughs> but that's speaking of that, that um, housing industrial complex, actually, <laughs> I was reading a story. Um, in the Sunday Business Post this morning. And um, it was, it's about um, a housing development in Clane in County Kildare. Um, and there's a legal challenge up against it, right? And initially it just, it kind of sounded like, um, I wasn't sure if it was a bit of nimbyism or what. And, and it turns out it's actually much more, much more problematic than, uh, the, than my initial uh, reading of it. But essentially what's happened is uh, the Clane Community Council um, in the area um, was they're legally challenging a decision by on board Panala basically granting permission for a 91 home development. Um, and what the developer has done is said, oh, we'll offer you one of the houses 
uh, to raffle off to fund all of the sports community, the sports groups in the local area. Like if you like shut up and withdraw your complaint, essentially. Um, so they're hanging this four hundred thousand uh, worth uh, home to, uh, in this like and and dangling in front of them to say, well, we'll give you this and you can raffle it off and you'll make a million off it. And that's a whole other problematic like conversation around how we, we can now just see see homes as this, uh, that it's it's so scarce that, you know, we're now making it a, a weird gambling kind of raffly. Oh, it, it just kind of turns my stomach um, on it. But anyway, they were saying this would be great for all the local GAA football rugby clubs. They'll all get part of this one million if you raffle it right under the guise essentially that they would remove that the, the plain community council would remove their objection but what's happening now is you have all the sports clubs going up against the community council fighting with each other saying like the sports clubs are like remove the complaint the, the clubs are like we need the money the council are like no we need to stand up against this but actually really legitimately um, so, like, obviously, you have two community groups now fighting each other rather than actually fighting the fact that this uh, developer propo- the proposal of the 91 uh, homes is actually part of a much wider problem um, that's happening around this development. So the Kildare Development Plan proposed that 780 housing units would be permitted in the clean area. But they've already received 200, or 720 houses uh, since 2017 when the plan came into place but they're proposing another 500 extra on top of the 780 outside of the plan uh, that was made only a couple of years ago and bearing in mind there's only 2,600 households in claim and you're talking about adding another 500 plus 720 homes in the next couple of years so like very legitimately the, the uh, claim community councillor saying this is completely against the development plan, like huge problems. They're already overburdened in schools and traffic and all of that jazz, but like outrageous that the conversation has moved from this is completely against the development plan. Uh, it's an outrageous uh, scale of expansion with no other like thought around it. And now it's become a political football between two communities rather than against the developer and the actual plan that they should be following. It's, 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 it's shocking. And also in the same kind of guys, there's a conversation uh, from Alan Kelly. It must be uh, sent in by his PR team. Um, but it's it's analysis of um, the lack of progress on reform or on board Panala. So back when Alan Kelly was in the Labour Party and environmental minister in uh, before 2016, they uh, they did an independent review on on board Panala, and there was 101 recommendations. And since 2016, there's only been 36 of those 101 recommendations actually progressed. And like we're talking a lot about you know like the issues around planning and so many different ways, like um you know. Uh, this kind of narrative of like people blocking planning and like how you know the communities at the problem not actually the developers putting forward like problematic developments and you know profit hungry rather than actually community need and you know all looks uh, way bigger analysis there but like so there's some there's, there's loads of um obviously recommendations that need to be done on it um but essentially like you know things such as like giving on board panala legally binding timelines to process um 
process cases within 12 weeks. But uh, the, the board panel have come back and said, oh, no, it's the Department of Housing's problem. It's all legislative change that we need to do. Um, so apparently we're expect we're to expect something from an attorney general in September on that. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, just, a, yeah, just kind of following on. There's actually, I think, another housing piece that I was reading that ties into that. Um, yes, in Cork County Council, uh, it's also in the Sunday Business Post, they're talking about uh, rezoning land um, and how, you know, the rezoning of land might leave landowners subject to tax. So this piece is around how the planning watchdog is, is uh, worried that landowners will be hit with a new uh, vacant site tax due to overzoning of land for housing, right? So essentially what's happening is uh, landowners are lobbying the council to rezone their land, to increase market value so that they can sell it on for more. Um, but now they're afraid that all this lobbying is going to come back and bite them in the ass because they're going to have to pay for uh, vacant residential uh, land tax or vacant land or vacant site tax. Um, so like on one hand, they're saying, uh, you know, you know, well, we want the extra profits off the back of our land, you know, for this extra value that the zoning will give, but we're not willing to pay any of the taxes that might have that might come with that if we don't actually use it for that zoning purpose. It's absolutely outrageous. So, like, essentially, what's happening is there's far more land being zoned for housing than is actually the intended to be built on. Um, so, for example, in the Cork County Council, they have 600 hectares of land rezoned. Uh, for housing, which is consistent with their plans to build 16,500 new homes over the next six years. But the the Office of uh, the Planning uh, Regulator has said there's no evidence to support the council's decision to identify even more housing uh, land as part of a residential reserve. So this is like a residential reserve of people who, who want to just rezone land for market to increase market prices. And like, mad, right? But like, Next year, this year, the councils are due to start producing maps of zoned la vacant housing land from November onwards. So they have to do it within the next year. Um, so now this is why it's coming under kind of, a, 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 I think, at the, the residential, the vacant residential land tax will be coming in from 2024 onwards. But landowners and developers have to self-assess the market value that is entered into this uh this mapping exercise. They have to do it themselves. It's not like the council overseeing it and them assessing the value. No, you assess the value of your own land. Um, so it'll be interesting to see now if like we're going to see lands being dezoned for housing to try and avoid taxes. Um, but um, yeah, and, and then it, it mentioned a kind of a, a piece around how there'll be 30% penalty for landowners who undervalue their land. But look, we, we know a lot of the follow-up for some of that stuff is they probably won't have the resources to be able to to kind of actually hold people to account to that. But that's going to be really interesting to see how that pl plays out. But I just think that uh, that's policy. Like going back to what you said about what's happening in Clane, there's so many different things that were jumping out about that. Obviously, there's the whole planning issue. But this is just a, a decades old practice of throwing scraps at a community that are desperate for resources and having them fight over it. And they're so distracted that they can't do what Connor was talking about and mobilize and organize and take to the streets. And because you're just so caught up in actually trying to survive and trying to re to meet the needs of your community. I think that's, it's scarcity. It's back to scarcity all the time. And it feels like that's government policy. Again, back to what Connor was saying about hope. And I totally agree. I'm losing faith in the system. I'm losing faith that politics has any real part in, in, in driving change here. I'll still engage. And I still, you know, any move towards the left is always going to be a good thing. But again, I'm starting to, it's outside of that. It's community work. It's taken to the streets. It's mobilizing. It's organizing. That's where change is going to happen. But um, 
yeah on the housing i mean also on that it's back to that hot like fundraising for local resources like there there's very little difference in that um developer actually just selling that house along with all the others they could sell it very easily <laughs> along with all the others and and they don't want to take responsibility for it it's back to institutions not wanting to take responsibility for local resources because then you have to be responsible for the maintenance and all that kind of stuff as well so it's just it's the same old story time and time again the communities most in need are throwing scraps and then they, they have to fight among themselves to you know to meet the needs of their communities um i have one last story before we wrap up um, this day last week was the 41st anniversary of the stardust there was a really powerful um gathering down at the site as you know there is every year charlie board spoke and christy moore sang and it, like it was just all the families were there and it was just really powerful but this week in the news so basically the pre-inquest hearings are still going on Um, there was a story in the papers that eamon butterley who was the owner of the stardust his solicitor had petitioned the court you know the inquest judge basically to remove unlawful killing as an option for the jury which is sure like it's this is just decades of this stuff nobody you know that has seen his behavior before is, is very surprised but um that was shut down and it was shut down very powerfully by the judge i mean she has she has been really i think she's been really powerful right throughout she's been kind of unequivocal um how fair she's been and how clear she is in her support of making sure that this is a you know completely open and transparent process for the families as well and it was just it was a relief you know because again it would have just been removing the teeth from the process before it even started which is what's been done to families of those that died for decades you know it's been this constant every time that i don't think there can be justice but i don't you know truth and so and some kind of acknowledgement of what was done and how our families were treated over the years uh every time that's been offered up it's been slowly eroded away and then by the time you get an actual report it doesn't mean anything so this process really every step of the way looks like it's been done in the right way and you know with the with the families in mind so yeah that's the last story i have it was just it was a really it was a really good thing to hear that they weren't going to bow to that kind of pressure because it was absolutely ridiculous in the first place yeah absolutely like height of disrespect even to try and like have that piece of lobbying done there's actually another story on the front page i just want to um and it's quite a, it's not going to be a, a nice one to finish off with because it's quite stark. It's a short one, but um, when you actually think about the the, the, the severity of what, what this means for us, it's shocking. It's uh, emissions reduction targets is unlikely to be met, says the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, so essentially what, what this like very short article points out is that like, basically they're saying that it's unlikely that emissions are going to be dropped in the primary sectors of agriculture, energy and transport during 2022 and that we're not going to meet targets for this year. Um, and like this is like the second year of the first five year carbon budget cycle. And I suppose like this budget cycle was developed to what, like be outside of political, like, you know, the, the political turnover of elections and all of that. But turns out even when it is, it, it, it doesn't look like we can um, meet the targets as it is. So like basically we're supposed to be reducing our um, carbon emissions by 4.8% 4, 4 annually up to 2025. But last year, the emissions rose. We rose, our emissions rose last year, not reduced, they rose. Um, and the other piece that was really interesting in this, in this article was that 4.8% figure of reduction that we named was on the lower side. So we decided to uh, agree to lower limits at the start to ease ourselves into it. Um, on, on the understanding that we would meet those and then from 2025 we would be reducing our uh, carbon emissions by 8.3% annually. Um, but if we 
our emissions went up last year. Up. Like, <laughs> and this is kind of like, oh, everyone's working from home. No one's traveling. Things are slowing down. And yeah, we can't. And like, look, this is legally binding to have the 51% emissions reduction by 2030. You know, what happens when we don't meet them on an annual basis or by 2030? Like, it's just... Or fine, yeah. and they pass it on to and they pass it on to individual workers instead of the yeah. institutions that are causing the rise. That's yeah. what absolutely. Like it, it's kind of you know they can. They, we've talked about the unfairness of like the carbon tax on uh, on on people, but this is beyond talking about the carbon tax. What like you know the agriculture sector and the aviation sector lobbying to be not included in emission targets and all of the like these are the things that need to be addressed as well. You know. Um, but yeah, I just, I'd, I'd said I'd point that out now, but I couldn't, I couldn't leave it unchecked. Um, but Connor, do you have anything you want to chat about before we move on and uh, wrap it up? No, 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 it's fine. That's great, it. great. Well, look, I want to thank you. I thank both of my co-hosts, uh, Claire, Claire O'Connor and Connor McCabe. It's great to have Claire back again. Um, and for all our listeners, um, just to remind you to give us a share. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, every share um, is a great help to get kind of get this uh, analysis out um, wider um, and we look forward to chatting to you next week thanks for listening